Uh, let's go ahead and prepare for our lesson this evening. We're going to have a little bit of a shorter Bible class because uh, John and Valerie Brown are here, and they're missionaries down in Brazil to the Yanomami people, and so they're going to explain their ministry, or he's going to explain their ministry to us afterwards, so we need to prepare for that. Okay, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Father, we're so thankful that, that we have your word to study, to learn from, to reflect upon. Father, the more we think about it, the more there is that we see, the more we see, the more we learn. And God, the Holy Spirit, takes this and applies this to our spiritual life. It strengthens us, edifies us, builds us up, and this is the path to spiritual maturity. It's your word on which we feed, and we're so thankful we have it. Father, we pray for our nation. Right now, we have so many things that are challenging to face the nation, that face this nation. There are decisions in the Supreme Court that will uh, change uh, forever the structure of this country. We pray that you would protect us from any evil influence from that direction. Father, we pray for uh, those who are running for president this next time. We pray that their issues will be made very clear to the public, that they may understand just who they're voting for and why. Father, we pray that you'd give us wisdom in selecting candidates and in the voting procedure. Father, we pray as we study your word that we might recognize that ultimately the real solution to the problem is always spiritual because the problem always comes down to spiritual issues. And that means it must the real issues, the real answers must start at the cross and build on your revelation. Help us to understand these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, and I will, uh, if God is gracious, cover two or three verses this, this t- tonight. Uh, we've been moving kind of slow, but there's just so much here. It's just so tremendous to, to be able to dig down into this. I may have mentioned this before. I taught Samuel, First and Second Samuel, almost 20 years ago, and it's amazing how much I was learning then and how much I've learned since then to go back and read my notes and to see how much more there is to to get out of the Word than, than what I was seeing a long time ago. And that just comes from more time in grade, and there's not anything that can replace that. What we see here is that this is a victory hymn, and, and one of the things I like about looking at Psalms is because Psalms are the product of the personal life experiences of the writers of of those psalms. They've looked at life, and they've looked at their experience. They've looked, in many cases, at the trauma, at the adversity, at the difficulty that they had, and how they worked through it in their spiritual life and their relationship with God, how they called upon the Lord to deliver them, and how God answered them. And some of those uh, psalms are classified as lament psalms. That's the scholarly term because the the writer is bringing his problem to God, and he just he's laying it all out there. And that's the way we should be uh, when we have problems. Go to the lament psalms to see how to be given a pattern for how the psalmist faced their problems. Then we have thanksgiving psalms when they write at the end and they're thanking God for what He has done. Then there's descriptive 
uh, praise psalms. And this is when the, the writer is writing at the end, and he's praising God for how he's delivered them. Now, when you look at a lament psalm, often they start with the problem. They focus then on God, who's always the solution. Then they go to thanksgiving, maybe a verse or two within within that lament structure, and then it will end with a praise. So all of those elements may be within a lament song. This is really a song of victory. We have examples, two previous examples of women in the Old Testament crafting a song. These were designed to be sung as praise. And they're a great pattern, as I pointed out earlier, of how music, how the lyrics should be structured and presented in, in songs of praise. Now, when we sing on Sunday morning, we sing hymns, and those of you who've been with me for a while know that I've spent a lot of time studying and teaching on this aspect of of worship because there's so much distortion about it today, and there's so many people who who misunderstand what is going on when it comes to music in the church and, and why it's important. Some people minimize it. I've heard people say, well, you know, the main thing is getting to the Word. Why do we spend any time singing at all? Well, the largest book in the Bible is a songbook. Seems like God has something to say about singing. The first thing, one of the first things that's mentioned about the result of the filling of the Spirit in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, 19 and 20, immediately after the command to be filled by means of the Spirit, talks about singing psalms and hymns and making spiritual uh, melody in your heart. So that tells us that Worship in singing is not something that is secondary in terms of personal and corporate worship, but it's primary along with the teaching of the Word of God. It's not minimized. It doesn't say be filled by, with the Spirit and study the Word. That wasn't the first thing that Paul said. The first thing he said was singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody to the Lord in your heart. It's interesting that he does that. I'm not saying that that makes singing the priority or that it's more important, but it is significant that that is listed first as a result of being filled by the Spirit. So it's not something that should be considered to be optional in a person's spiritual life. It's important. Now, when we look at this song, this Psalm of Hannah's, it is a song of praise. And she is stating that she has had victory over these circumstances in her life. And I would bet that if I were to poll everyone that's here, we all recognize that we face all kinds of problems in life, difficulties. We have problems dealing with older parents. Some of it has to do with their stubbornness. Some of it has to do with their health. Some of it has to do with their uh, lack of memory and going into uh, senility or Alzheimer's, all kinds of different things, and that puts added levels of uh, pressure and adversity in everybody's life. Then we have problems with children. We have problems with children and grandchildren, and we have to deal with those things. We have problems that address just just finances because we're living in a country that is seeing a, a degradation occur in terms of the economy and a government that seeks to fantasize about it and say it's not really happening. There's a lot of things that are going on in our culture, plus the fact that we're seeing it become more and more paganized, and that you and I as believers in the Bible and the truth of God's Word 
are becoming more and more distant and more and more divorced from the culture that is around us, and there's more and more challenges there. And so we're not unlike Hannah in a household with another wife that is constantly berating her, constantly making fun of her, constantly hostile to her, and constantly running her down. And so she discovered that the only solution that she had within the confines of her situation was to go to the Lord in prayer, and this is her praise in focusing on God and how he has supplied the answer to her problem. And I don't know about you, but I always find that exciting, especially when I'm going through problems, that it takes time. She may have gone through this form of testing for five or six or seven years, maybe even as much as a decade, as she was unable to have children, and that probably went on for three or four years before they decided she was barren and she wasn't going to have children. And then Eli or Elkanah took another wife, and then uh, she's had uh, several children, so that would take another three or four years. So it could conceivably have gone on for 10 years. And most of us, when we've had 10 days of adversity, we're impatient with God. 10 months, we're really beginning to question our faith. And when it comes to 10 years, we're, it's a wonder if you're still in Bible class. So we have to focus on, on the fact that God's plan and God's timetable isn't, isn't ours. And sometimes before the lesson is really learned and God is going to come in to resolve the problem, a couple of decades might go by. In our lives, we, we're, very, we're extremely impatient. We think that's way too long, but God looks at things from a different perspective. So we see her, re, her, her rejoicing in this, and this was a little bit of an outline that I structured here is the real theme of this is God's in control. God controls history in the broad scale. God controls history in terms of your life and my life. And the ultimate issues in our lives or in the broad, broad scope of history or in the narrow scope of our life is on our response to God in terms of arrogance versus humility. And I touched on the doctrine of arrogance last week. That's one of the themes that undergirds this, this hymn of praise because Penina represents the arrogant ones who are opposed to God and are not relying upon God. They're self-reliant, they're self-sufficient, and they're not depending on God for providing what they have. And they've accumulated wealth and they've accumulated power. They've accumulated position However they've accumulated it, it's not something that God gave them, but uh, those who are without are the ones who seem to be trodden underfoot by those who have positions, and yet God turns the tables on the arrogant, and he is the one ultimately who exalts or promotes the one who is humble, so that the issue of our circumstances is ultimately can be related to the lessons we're learning regarding arrogance and humility. So in the first three verses, basically, the focus is on God's unique sovereignty. I built that off of verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord. And that word holy is not a word that emphasizes purity, but emphasizes the uniqueness of God, which is seen in the parallel of the second line, which is expresses the same idea in another way, and states, for there is none beside you. So the idea here is on the uniqueness of God and his sovereignty, his uh, infallibility, his 
his faithfulness, his immutability. There's no rock like our God. Uh, she begins with a statement in verse 1 about her praise. She praises. Uh, her praise is in the Lord. Uh, her heart is exalted in the Lord. And that's a phrase by meaning it's her relationship to God that puts, gives her joy and that has lifted her up above her circumstances. She smiles at her enemies. And that, as I, as I expressed that earlier, it's not really I smile. That's the, that's a difficult translation. There's several things in this hymn that are difficult to translate from the, from the Hebrew. She opens her mouth, which means that she is expressing her victory over them by virtue of her dependence upon God. And, uh, so that's another way in which she's expressing her uh, exultation at God giving her the victory. And the cause for all this is at the last line, because I rejoice in your salvation. And that's the last time we hear about Hannah. It's not all about her. That's one of the problems we face in our self-centered, uh, self-centered society today is it's all about me. And people think that you go to church to hear how God's going to solve my problems. Uh, I want to hear ten, 10 ways in which God's going to solve my marriage. Help my marriage, solve my marriage problems. Ten ways I can I can straighten out my teenager. Uh, Ten ways I I can make more money. Uh, Ten ways I can have health and happiness. And there, in fact, yesterday I was I I exercised control of my tongue as I was in a uh, Verizon store waiting for some assistance. There was a lady, uh, probably close to my age, who was talking to a younger man. And she was just going on and on about this wonderful new church that she was going to. And the pastor had been an assistant pastor at one of the uh, larger Baptist churches around. And for some reason, he was let go. So he started his own church. And they're meeting over here somewhere around Memorial City or in Memorial City. And she was just telling this other guy about all the wonderful things. She says, the music is wonderful. It's a little loud every now and then, but it's really wonderful. And, uh, and and he gives these sermons that are just so practical about helping. And she went through, I, I was standing there and I couldn't help overhearing her. She goes through about nine or ten things about how wonderful this church is. And, and part of me just wanted to say, really, that sounds so wonderful. Is he a good Bible teacher? What have you learned about the Bible lately? But I was, I figured, you know, maybe my motivation's wrong, so I better not say anything. So we, we see that, that in, in, in the biblical Psalms, the, the focus isn't on the person other than maybe at the beginning to express the adversity they're going through. And then the focus shifts to the Lord. It shifts away from that first person pronoun to a, uh, first person plural, like our God at the end of verse two. And then she will talk about a second person, which comes up in the third verse. And that's where we have an admonition. Talk no more so very proudly. Do not talk so arrogantly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. And then the explanation for why this exhortation, we covered this last time, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Now what attribute of God is being brought into focus here? It's God's justice. He is the one who weighs the, weighs the actions of people. It's connected to his omniscience. He knows all the nobles. He understands our motivation. He understands all the factors that are going on inside of our head. 
and he evaluates the actions because he's the only one who knows all of the all, all of the data. So what we see here is a lead up to the doctrine related to the uh, to the sovereignty of God, which is what we see in these the layout here. Focus on God's unique sovereignty in the first three verses. Then in verses four and five, we see the application of that sovereignty in that God overrides the plans of man. We'll see that in verses 4 and 5. Then in verses 6 to 7, we come back to seeing that this emphasis on God's sovereignty, what he does. And then it looks at him overriding the plans of of man. And he does that because he's sovereign. Man wants to do one thing, but God is the one ultimately in control. And this ought to encourage us because no matter what we see going on on the national and international scene, and trust me, things just get worse and worse and worse. What's going on in regard to these Iranian negotiations ought to keep you awake at night if you didn't have promises. I have heard the same Iranian expert talk three or four times now with APAC. She's had got a PhD in whatever international studies. She's had she's worked for the CIA, she's worked for several uh non governmental organizations and her specialty for since since the early eighties has been on Iran. And I hear her talk and after five minutes I say, How can you sleep at night knowing what you know? The, the stockpiles of weapons, the, 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 Iran has never kept even the smallest clause of any agreement that they've ever made with anybody over the last uh, 35 years. Uh, and it just goes on and on and on. They're stockpiling uh, uranium. They're, they're building everything they can to, to, uh, to build the infrastructure necessary to launch uh, nuclear weapons towards Western Europe and towards the United States. And, and the West is still bearing its head. They don't want to face reality. And in all of these negotiations, just to give you one example, one thing that's not on the table that Iran will not discuss is their uh, ICBM program in the development of intercontinental ballistic missiles, which only exists for one purpose, and that is to put nuclear warheads into Western Europe or into Washington, D.C. or New York or Houston or some other place in the United States. There's only one reason to have ICBMs, and that's to deliver a nuclear payload. And yet they won't talk about it. When they talk about these negotiations, that's not even on the table. None of this kind of stuff is on the table. It's, it's, and, and the lies that are being communicated to the American people to make us think that they are standing their ground uh, is just uh, uh, abominable. And so it's horrible what's going on out there. The only thing we can do is try to give some backbone to our congressmen and to our senators to stand firm. And right now, the only thing, basically, I think that the Senate can do is they've managed to get this bill passed on the Iranian negotiations so that no matter what happens, even if they sign a deal, and it'll be a bad deal if they sign one, uh, contrary to everything that the administration has said, that that no deal is better than a bad deal. Trust me, what they mean by a bad bad deal is really a bad deal. It's as bad as no deal. And so they're going to allow uh, the worst stuff to take place. But the uh, the sanctions against Iran can't be lifted without Senate approval, and they've managed to re- retain that. So even if uh, even if the worst-case scenario occurs and they sign some horrible bill, um, 
they can't they can't back off the sanctions without congressional approval, and that's going to be another battle that'll come up. And so we need to pray for them, and we need to call them, and we need to give them uh, some encouragement to 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 stay the course. But God's in control. Man disposes. Iran can scream and rant and rave, and they can have all the technology and develop all the weapons possible. But God's in control, so we can relax because our mission is ultimately to get the gospel out and to encourage people, and to use this as an opportunity for those who are running around in a panic state to say, relax, God's in control. We need to do what we can do, but ultimately it's in the Lord's hands. So God overrides the plans of man, and we just keep seeing the repetition of this theme as we as we go through this particular section. Now in verse 3, as I pointed out, uh, Hannah admonishes, arrogant man concerning their behavior before the omniscient sovereign God. And those last last couple of lines there emphasize the justice of God before it introduces us into the next uh, five verses, which all relate to the sovereignty of God. The first two show his actions as, the, as, as God overrides the plans of man. That's a function of his sovereignty. And then verses 6 through 8 are going to talk about examples of his sovereignty. In fact, First uh, Samuel 2, uh, 6 through 8 is one of the key verses that you should learn in relation to the sovereignty of God. So if you're teaching the essence box to the kids in prep school, this should be one of those verses. Maybe in the mar- top margin of your Bible, you ought to write sovereignty of God because this is a critical section for that, talking about the sovereignty of God. So let me just go over about uh, four points on the sovereignty of God, just or five points, just as an introduction. First of all, let's let's look at the definition of the sovereignty of God. The term sovereignty relates to rulership and authority. So when we just think about sovereignty, we think about a king. We think about a ruler. We think about his authority to rule over his domain. So sovereignty of God relates to God's authoritative rule over his creation and over his creatures. When, when we ultimately get back to who's in charge, then who's, who's their boss, who's their boss, who's their boss, we end up with God. God controls everything. But the way in which God controls everything is is different. He exercises his control in direct ways and in indirect ways. As most of you know, one of the big theological conundrums that has caused theologians to argue for the last uh, several thousand years, ever since the scripture's been revealed, is between where are the limits between the authority of God, his sovereignty, and the free will, or the uh, the free will, or the volition of man. And when we think about this, one of the things that comes into the question, just as an example, is the idea of causation. Well, who causes things? If God's in control, does He cause evil? If God is in control, did He cause Barack Obama to be elected? If God is in control, did he cause that that great tsunami that hit uh, in Indonesia several years ago that, that killed uh, uh, tens of thousands of people? What are the parameters here? Well, when we think about causation in, in the human realm, based on our experience and our observation, 
we see one type of causation. Actually, Aristotle divided things into four different categories of causation, and I'm not going to get into that. But we see certain levels of causation that operate within the creaturely realm. Is God in the creaturely realm? No. God is above the creaturely realm. So God, causation, when it deals with the creator to the creature, is not the same as the kind of causation that you and I observe. One of the problems that we get into in discussing the issues between sovereignty and free will is we extrapolate to God the same kind of causation that we observe at the creaturely level. So we're trying to make the creator conform to the to creaturely causation. That's a logical fallacy, and that's that's a basic problem. So God interacts with his creation in ways that are perhaps analogous to, but they are not the same as the way in which causation occurs in, at, the, at the creaturely level. So God rules over his creatures, but he does so in a way that allows for his creatures to utilize their independent will, their volition is really a better term because they're never totally independent of God, their creaturely will within certain boundaries. He gives them the, the freedom to exercise that volition within certain boundaries, but God can always override that volition so that you may have someone who wants to build an empire, whether it's a business empire, whether it's a national empire, and God can override that and slap them down. God may allow them a degree of success, as he did with Nebuchadnezzar, and then if you recall, he gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream, saying, remember your sovereignty in the first dream when he's the head of gold over the, the, the statue, uh, that would, might have gone to Nebuchadnezzar's head. He's the head of gold. He's the greatest empire in the stream of empires. And he was the ruler over all the earth. And then God says, this has gone to your head. Now you think that it's all because of you. And so I'm going to strike you down and you're going to crawl around in the dirt and eat grass and, and get water by licking the dew off the grass for the next seven years. And you're not going to be able to talk to anybody and you're basically going to be an animal. And so God demonstrates his sovereignty. So even when we exercise our will, God can still override that will. Now, a couple of ways that we express this is that the sovereign will of God is expressed through his plan. We don't owe, and it includes two things. It includes his permissive will and his decreed or revealed will. It includes his permissive will and his decreed or revealed will. Let me give you an example. God's decreed will, and sometimes it's use the term decretive will, God's decreed will and his revealed will to Adam was, you shall not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But God in his permissive will allowed, allowed Adam to exercise his will in rebellion to God. And we see what happened. And God established enough flexibility in all of creation. And Adam's sin just didn't affect him. He became corrupt, but it reverberated throughout all of the all of creation. The animal kingdom changed. Uh, the universe changed. Uh, a lot of things changed. I think it's at that point you had the second law of thermodynamics going to affect where everything deteriorates into a state of entropy. And that um, that it's at that point 
that that we see we, we see this huge change because of God's permissive will. He built enough flexibility into creation to handle the chaos that comes from the exercise of independent will and independent volition uh, when man went against his will. So we have God's sovereign will, which incorporates both his decreed will and his, uh, his permissive will. And in his permissive will, he allows his creatures to exercise their own volition, but he has determined that uh, when human beings... That, the, that he has determined that human beings can exercise their own volition within certain boundaries. Okay, so the first part is just a definition that the sovereignty of God refers to his authoritative rule over his creation and his creatures. The second point is that his sovereign will has determined the limits of human volition. So have you ever noticed you really want to do some things and you know that there's not a prayer on this earth you're ever going to do it? God has limited whether or not you can fulfill those things. Some people say, if I just had X amount of dollars, I would give that to support missions. Or if I had X amount of dollars, I would do this. God says, nope, not going to happen. I don't want you to do that because I don't want them to have the money. You'll never, if that's what you're going to do with the money, you're never going to have any money. Sometimes it works the other way. If I had all this money, I know what I would do. And God says, y- y- I'm not going to let your sin nature get that much control of you. So you're never going to have any money. <laughs> so God exercises control and limits over our, our volition. And he overrides certain d- decisions. Third point is that God's sovereign will is such that God has built into the framework of his plan for history the flexibility to handle whatever chaos results from human volition. Just as he built flexibility into the creation world, the natural world, the physical world, the universe to handle the chaos that came from sin, the same thing happens in history. So when certain things happen in history as a result of human decisions, God can still override that and control it and still bring to bring about what he has planned and purposed in history. He's in control. And he has such great control that he doesn't, in contrast to the Calvinistic concept of a sovereign God, God doesn't have to control all the minutia. He, can, he, he has enough control to where within those boundaries of, of human volition, he still can allow human volition to operate and bring about what he desires. So one way that's been expressed is that God has decreed that human will, human volition, uh, operates alongside of human uh, of God's sovereignty, but it really isn't alongside of. It's never alongside. God's sovereignty just allows it to operate within those certain boundaries. But God's sovereignty is always the ultimate determiner of what's allowable and what's not allowable. Okay, the fourth point is that God's sovereignty does not infringe on human volition on critical issues such as man's response to general or special revelation. When somebody looks up at the skies and sees the patterns in the skies, says this universe is bigger than anything, there's no way this could happen by chance, then, then that, there must be something else out there. There's some, it has such order, there must be an orderer, somebody who is uh, in control, somebody who has intelligently designed the universe. I want to know about them. 
God allows it, and then God will give more more revelation. Somebody hears the gospel. God is not going to determine whether they're going to be negative or positive. That's their that's their decision. God, the Holy Spirit, is going to make that clear. One of the pernicious doctrines in Calvinism is is called uh, irresistible grace. And the reason you have have to have irresistible grace in Calvinism is because their first point in tulip is the T, total inability, not total depravity. Total depravity is solid because we're all depraved in every area of our being. That's sin. Sin's corrupted everything. It's corrupted every aspect of our being. But total inability means that you can't exercise positive volition. You can't do anything positive in, in a positive direction toward God unless God enables you. And God's not going to enable you in Calvinism unless you are elect. And and then because you are elect, then when God uh, begins to draw you uh, from John chapter 6, and when God begins to draw you, then that that is going to be uh, ir- irresistible. And their, their basic argument is that because of total inability, you're basically blind. And you can't see the truth. And if you can't see the truth, you can't respond to the truth. And so God's only going to give light to those who, whom he's elected. That's why it's irresistible. But if you're blind, think about this. If you're blind to spiritual, spiritual truth because you're fallen and because of sin, then why does Satan have to blind our minds to the truth of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.4? 4? Think about that. If you're already naturally blind because of sin, that you're totally unable to see truth or respond to truth, then why does Satan have to blind you to truth? 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that Satan is the God of this age who blinds men to the truth of the gospel. He doesn't need to do that if if you're totally unable to do anything because of sin, according to Calvinism. But that's just a biblical point, so sometimes we don't pay attention to those things. God's sovereignty does not infringe on human volition. He gives enough, a little light. If that's responded to, he gives more light. If it's not responded to, he doesn't give any more light. That's the fourth point. So as we look at this whole issue under point number five, 2 Samuel 2, 4 through 8 is one of the great passages on the sovereignty of God. And it shows that God is the one who comes along and he intervenes in human history. God messes with human history. He gets involved. And that's one thing that really irritates unbelievers is is the idea that God is an uncontrollable factor. Under rationalism and empiricism, man wants to control all the data. That's why they think that with doctrines such as global warming, or now it's called climate change and maybe a few other things, that they think they can really get a handle on what's going on in the universe. That's the arrogance of man. And there's so much data out there that they're ignorant of that can change change the picture. And God is constantly intervening. I think we saw an example of the intervention of God as an answer to prayer last week. I don't know how many of you paid attention to what happened when that tropical storm, Bill, right, Bill? When Bill came on on shore last week. Often, you guys have lived here a long time, you'll see these these hurricanes and storms come up just before they hit land, they'll bounce. Well, Bill took a 50-mile left turn 
when it came close to Matagorda Bay. All the projections had him coming, coming, had that storm coming straight in and coming straight north. And if it had tracked on that track, the center of the storm would have come, gone right up Beltway 8, and we would have gotten, as they predicted, 10 to 15 inches of rain or more, just like they did out in the middle of nowhere uh, between Katy and San Antonio. Columbus got hammered and some of those other small towns, but Houston just would have been devastated. Just as the center of that storm, you can watch it on the radar, it took a left turn for 50 miles and then took a right turn and went in. And if and I believe God just reached out and went, okay, you're not going to mess up that pastor's conference. And just went, <laughs> you're going this way. So that's how God, God intervenes. As a result, answered prayer. Prayer changes things. James says, you have not because you ask not. So we had a great answer to prayer. God do, does intervene. So oh, you see here in verses 4 and 5 is a depiction of that intervention. Hannah reflects upon how God changes things in, in human history. She says, The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Not the best translation. Then she goes on to say, Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. So let's look at this. The bows of the mighty men are broken. The term for bows is a term for weapons. And so the bows of the mighty men are talking about the weapons, the technology, the military might and skill and the power of the gibberim, the, those who are mighty. Now, now in the Bible, gibberim is often used to speak of mighty men and of warriors. But if you're in Israel, you'll see it, if you're a man, every time you go to the restroom. Because it basically means... Men, okay? And that's where men go. It's in, on every restroom. So here we put like gentlemen maybe. Okay, in Job, Job gives us a great example. Uh, Elihu is talking to Job, and he articulates a similar thought. The thought that we're looking at, it comes out of verse 3, the last phrase, by him actions are weighed. And because God weighs actions, because he's omniscient and just, he can make he will make decisions. So Job 34.23 says, uh, For he need not further consider a man that he should go before God in judgment. What's the theme of that verse? Talking about judgment. God judges men. And then in verse 24, he, as a result of God's judgment, and this is a judgment in time, he breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry and sets others in the place, their place. God raises up some men, and he tears down other men. God's in control, even if we have fools in the voting booth. In verse 25, Therefore he knows their works, he overthrows them in the night, and they are crushed. He strikes them as wicked men in the open sight of others, because they turn back from him and would not consider any of his ways. So this doesn't always happen. He's not saying that. And this doesn't happen when we want it to happen. God's timetable is not necessarily our timetable. Same thoughts expressed in two great psalms, Psalm 47.2. For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. That's a great verse for sovereignty expressing his rulership authority over the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. The us is referring to Israel. This is 
uh, obviously talking about what will eventually take place at the Millennial Kingdom. It, too, is like Hannah's psalm, a victory psalm. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellent Jacob whom he loves. The point is, God rules in the affairs of men. God controls history. In Psalm 47, 5 through 8, it goes on to say, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. That's expressing victory. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. For exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. So no matter what things look like, no matter what they look like in terms of politics, no matter what it looks like in terms of the decline and fall of a nation, no matter what it looks like in terms of foreign enemies, God is in control. Psalm 75, 6 and 7 stated this way, for exaltation, I, I just read that, I read that as part of the other. Exaltation comes from neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Over and over again, we have this idea expressed uh, throughout the Psalms. Those are just some of the examples. In Proverbs, we read that God is the one who evaluates and brings about his ultimate desire. Psalms, Proverbs 16.2, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. Everyone thinks he's doing the right thing, often in self-deception. But the Lord weighs the spirits. And there that would be the idea, not demons. That's not the idea there. The word for spirits often is a word just like it is in the New Testament that relates relates to an attitude, relates to uh, thinking, relates to um, uh, all of the different attitudes and thoughts that are involved. Proverbs 24.12 says, If you say, Surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart consider it? It's a classic excuse. Well, I didn't know that was wrong. Now, if you're a parent here, you probably never heard that, right? Surely, uh, he weighs his heart's considerate, but he who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? So when we look at 1 Samuel 2.4, the bows of the mighty men are broken. Who's breaking them? God is. This is stating a general principle. Power and might do not make right. God is the one who oversees. The, uh, it's expressed this way in the New American Standard. The bows of the mighty are shattered, which is a much more powerful expression of the verb, much more, uh, much more of a visual impact. But the feeble, that's the idea there. It's not just those who stumbled. It's the feeble. It's the weak. It's those who don't have power in contrast to those who do have power. Those who are feeble, those who are weak, they are girded with strength. That means uh, girding is a word for putting on armament, putting on your weapons, getting trained, being able to uh, fight your enemy, and they're girded with strength. This is parallel to what we see in 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, where Peter, addressing the younger people in the congregation, says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's the same idea we have in in verse 4, is that God elevates the humble and he puts down the proud. 
Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. The principle for us in terms of an application is like Hannah. She humbled herself under God versus Penina, who's arrogant. But there's a broader framework here, and that is that God is going to exalt those who are humble because those who are humble and humble themselves under the mighty hand of God are those who trust in his Savior, those who believe in Christ. And God will eventually exalt them, even though in this life they may be viewed as fools and they may be rejected. James 4, 6, and 7 but he gives more grace, therefore he says, God, this is the same quote as we had in 1 Peter 5, 5, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So as we look at 1 Samuel 2, 4, we see that this is uh, an antithetical parallelism contrasting the mighty and their, uh, their, their technology, their strength, their weapons versus versus the, those who don't. Now, there are many passages in Scripture that use this. Just for sake of time, I'll, I'll skip over these. Psalm 11, 2, Psalm 37, 14, uh, Proverbs, uh, or verses that use bow. And then we have passages talking about, about strength in Psalm 18, 32. Psalm 18, as I pointed out, is built on what Hannah says in this psalm. It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. That's a great verse to memorize. It's God who arms me with strength. Whatever you're facing, God arms you with strength and makes your way perfect. Psalm 18.39, For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. So God is the one who provides us with strength and provides the one who is, is stumbling uh, with strength. We have to be reminded from Psalm 33:16 that no king is saved by the multitude of an army. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Uh, a mighty man is delivered only by the Lord. Psalm 18:2 again. Uh, it's God who, um, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust. And Psalm 18:32 and Psalm 18:39 verses I just mentioned. It's all the Lord who uh, emphasizes that. And so we are strengthened by the Lord. And the one who is, who seems to be weakened, the one who seems to be irrelevant, is the one that God exalts. So next time we'll come back, we'll finish this up a little bit more, talking about those who are lifted up by the Lord and exalted by the Lord. The perfect example, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ, who humbled himself to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Why? So that the Lord will elevate him so that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The path to exaltation is always through humility, which means submission to the authority of God. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at these verses this evening, to be reminded that you are our strength and the key to tapping into your strength is that we walk by the Holy Spirit, that we humble ourselves, we walk in obedience to you, and that we trust in you. And that you are the one who elevates us in due time. You are the one who will strengthen us no matter what the adversity and what the challenges may be. And we need to learn how to relax and trust in you. Father, strengthen us with the study of your word this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
John and Valerie Brown are here, and John's going to come up, and he's going to give us a uh, probably about a 15, 20-minute explanation of what they're doing down in Brazil. Now, while he's getting his stuff together, uh, some of you know Brett Nazareth, who's with uh, Disciple Makers Multiplied. Brett's been here before. We've gone through some of that material. Brett was with the Yanomami tribes probably about 20 years ago, and was, uh, but in Venezuela, there's a difference. This was brought out in the, when, we, when he spoke at the conference last week, a difference between the, those that are north in Venezuela and those who are in Brazil. So he's going to give us a report on what's happening with their ministry down in Brazil. Okay. Um, I had a couple errors in my quiver tonight, but uh, I think I'm going to go with the uh, the primitive PowerPoint. Um, it's hard to believe in this modern world that we live in that there's actually people out there living so uh, far from our, our uh, lifestyle that they're actually putting their food on their table with bows and arrows and blowguns. But uh, the Yanomami people are still uh, living in the jungles in near complete isolation. And Valerie, can you give me a hand up here? Microphone and a bow and arrow and a blowgun are a little bit difficult to handle all at once. Um, I have a couple things here. And can you hold the mic too for a second? Just to illustrate uh, what they're doing down there in the jungle, today, this very morning, there were little boys and girls out in the jungle putting their breakfast on the table with a blowgun. It's a very effective uh, way to bring down a hummingbird or a songbird or or, uh, put a little soup on the table. We also have a bow and arrow here. Uh, As the boys and girls get a little bit older, they learn to use a bow and arrow. And I actually have two tips here. I have a broad head and a barbed tip. You know, a mommy man would be carrying these just about anywhere they go. And uh, they're very effective weapons for hunting and and even fishing, taking down birds, taking down tapirs, over 400-pound animal that walks through the jungle. Hold the uh, the microphone again, please. talking this evening about uh, a bow and arrow. You heard of that a little bit. And the Yanomami are very uh, very agile through the jungle and able to use a bow and arrow. Just about any Yanomami man that you meet would be able to hit a running rabbit anywhere in this room. Out to 25 yards are absolutely deadly. This is a broadhead that they would use on, use on uh, large game. And the barb tip that they'd use on fish and birds and any small animals, very effective. They're making these things with very simple tools. In the old days, they used stone tools to carve a bow out of a, a, a black palm, which is a very hard wood. But they can actually carve out a bow and arrow uh, from things in the jungle in about an hour now using a machete. 
So they're very, very uh, adept at living in the jungle. And really, the Yanomami people have a lot of resources. Um, the average Yanomami has more access to meat than your average Brazilian. Um, they're very capable of living off the jungle. They have access to hundreds of thousands of acres of land so that they could farm if they chose to do so, and they actually do some primitive farming. And uh, uh, they, ha they have just about everything they need to survive in the jungle, and they can make things with their own hands. And there are many anthropologists out there that would like to tell you that the Yanomami are living in harmony with nature and that we should leave them alone that uh, they're happier without all the problems of modern society. And it's very tempting to believe that. Uh, they have all, everything they need, you might think. But the reality is you cannot live uh, in harmony with nature if you're not in harmony with your creator. And in fact, you can't live in harmony with your neighbors. You can't live in, even in harmony with yourself if you don't have a, a relationship with your creator. And... Three years ago, when we were leaving Brazil uh, to, to come back to the United States to tell you in other churches what God has been doing in the jungle, we had a very uh, vivid illustration of that. Um, the night before we left, a young girl, about 17 years old, 17, 18 years old, um, hit her husband with a machete, and I don't think she intended to kill him. Uh, he was coming back from a tryst in the night, in the middle of the night, and she was very irritated and uh, took a swing at him as he was coming through the door and, and didn't hit him in the head as she intended. She hit him in the neck, and uh, he died very quickly. So that morning, as I was you know, packing up the final things and closing up our house, we heard this girl coming, being drugged up from the river from a canoe toward the house of uh, her in-laws. And... Uh, I went out there to try to figure out what was going on, why this was happening, and we didn't know the whole story at the time. But uh, I, for the most part, was the lawyer for the defense, and uh, unfortunately, I lost the case. You know, I was telling them, please wait, wait, let's call the, the older men of the village and see if we can solve this problem, figure out how to bring this to a, a reasonable outcome. I know justice is important to you, but let's talk about this. Let's see if we can work out something here. And the girl was actually beaten to death with sticks while my kids and my wife were on the other side of the house. And while the plane, we could actually hear the plane coming. And uh, I got on the plane that day with blood on my shirt. Um, that was uh, Yanomami justice. Uh, just this last term, three years uh, uh, there in, in the jungle, we also had another case where a man was standing on my very front porch and... Uh, his girlfriend, her mistress, maybe I should say, uh, was walking by and had been AWOL the night before. And he took one of those same arrows and he called her and he said, come over here. And she kind of gave him the, snubbed him a little bit, turned her head and kept walking. And about from here, the door away, he put one of those broadheads right behind her ear. Um, and that's uh, harmony with nature, and according to the Yanomami. Uh, it's a very... Brutal culture, far from God. And uh, they're not living in harmony with anybody, uh, as anthropologists would like you to think. Uh, they have uh, 
the resources. They have many things that, you, you know, just like us, you think, oh, you know, if I just had that car, if I didn't, you know, if I could get, we have jobs, we have an opportunity to gain things, but they don't bring us happiness. They don't bring us into harmony with anything. Uh, so that's, that's the background. They were a culture that doesn't even have a word for forgiveness, a culture that doesn't say please, it doesn't say thank you. Uh, there's no word for I'm sorry. Um, these are just kind of the tip of the iceberg, the background. So in the 1950s, early 60s, uh, missionaries were inspired by the story of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and those uh, uh, other missionaries who died in Ecuador to go out and seek out these people who are living in the jungle far from God. And contact was made with the Anamami people. And actually the village where we're living in now, there's about 30 years of missionary investment. And right from the beginning, there was some positive volition. There were people who were very interested in what the missionaries were saying. They said, uh, we really like that message of forgiveness. We we, we've all done things that we'd really like to forget. We have nightmares, and we'd like to forget them. When we like the other people, the people who we've done bad things against, we'd like them to forget. Uh, so we like that forgiveness thing. Even you know, We had to describe this word forgiveness in a whole phrase because it didn't exist in their language. But uh, they like that, but they said, oh, those guys over there have done things against me that I'm never going to forget. So let me go kill those guys. Then I'll come back and get that message of forgiveness. Didn't work out very well. Um, but the younger generation that's growing up now actually has seen how their parents handled that and saw how that wasn't working out. And uh, they're making different choices. So one of the things that we have done, we are doing, the mission uh, that we're with, uh, we're building relationships with the Yanomami. Not an easy thing to do. If they were lovable people, there wouldn't be a whole lot of necessity to be there. Um, so we're doing what you might call friendship evangelism. We're, we're building relationships with the people. But let me tell you, that's, that's not in and of itself the solution. It's part of the solution, but it's not the solution. Because when you build friendships with unbelievers or people who are very far from God, they say things like, oh, whatever works for you, that's good. They say, uh, like the Yanomami say, oh, well, that might work for you uh, Americans or you Brazilians. But we're Yanomami. Uh, we're different. So although that's part of what we do and an important part, it's not the solution. One of the other things that we do, uh, we do education. Now, this is a great one. The world loves education. You know, everybody want, you know, if you get a better education, you're, you're going to be a better person, right? It's not what D.L. Moody said. Uh, he said if you stay in school, you're just going to have a more sophisticated criminal. And that's exactly what we see with, uh, with the Anamami as well. Um, we're teaching them. We teach uh, them to read and write in their own language. There was no written language early on. Uh, the, our first missionaries reduced their uh, language to writing. And, uh, and so, but we're doing education. We're teaching them to read and write. And we're teaching them math and eventually a little bit of Portuguese. Uh, and we actually have professors that we've trained uh, to teach in the Yanomami school, the Yanomami professors. And uh, I can tell you a story of two professors, one Shumacho, one Jonas. And Shumacho uh, is only interested in education and what it can bring him and his, the salary that he can get as a teacher and all those things. And uh, 
he has become a more sophisticated criminal. When he goes out to town, he goes out to town to collect his salary. He's been working for six months and has a huge nest egg stored up. And his whole family and relatives are all expecting him to come back with trade goods. Uh, for the past uh, four or five years, he's come back empty-handed because he's drank it all and spent it at, at uh, brothels. So uh, he's he's learned how to get around quite well with his Portuguese in the city of Bovista and uh, hasn't advanced very well. Another professor, Jonas, uh, is also more interested in God's word and doctrine and in uh, following God, and uh, his life is a completely different story. Uh, he's uh, got a healthy family and a healthy relationships, both uh, with his family and also with the community. He's become a community leader. Uh, very different story. So education uh, is one of the things we do, but it's not the solution. Uh, one of the other things that we do is we're working to translate the Bible into their own language, their heart language, so that they can understand it better. And we're teaching doctrine. We're teaching them about God's word, and we're teaching them about God. And the ones who have responded positively to that and who are, uh, who've had systematic, systematic Bible study or Bible teaching, um, there's where we're seeing the difference. People who are, are literally stepping from death into life um, because the education, the seminars, we've done seminars on alcoholism, we've done all kinds of things. They don't make a difference unless the heart is changing, unless the Holy Spirit is indwelling someone. Um, they can't escape their sin nature. And uh, so that's uh, where we've seen the big difference. We've seen people who are uh, taking God's word. We've seen alcoholics. We've seen abusive people. We've seen domestic families where there's domestic violence. And when they hear God's word and understand it and accept it, and uh, uh, all of a sudden we start to see changes in their lives. Uh, and we've uh, begun to see a, a church begin to form in the middle of the, the Amazon rainforest in the village of Potomiu. Uh, we have a fledgling church. We have a handful of uh, solid believers who are becoming leaders in the church. They're uh, learning to study God's word for themselves. And they're learning to teach it to their to the others in their community. And they're learning to worship God. And they're living in harmony with their creator now. They're in a true relationship with God. And uh, it's making all the difference. To the point where they're actually going out on missions trips. They've, they're hearing of distant villages who want to hear about God. And they've gone there and <clears throat> had... Uh, a tremendous impact in those villages as well. Actually, places where anthropologists have gained a foothold, isolated the people there and said, yeah, we want to preserve their culture, um, not actually realizing that they're warring so badly with each other, their numbers are declining and they're going extinct. Um, but our, our church leaders have gone over there and uh, had a tremendous impact, uh, leading many of them to the Lord and teaching doctrine, putting scripture in their hands, uh, both through uh, uh, talking Bibles, which is uh, a recording, it's a little solar-powered uh, electronic re device that'll that they can listen to and hear God's word. And also, amazingly, you know, the government always likes to say education will make will save you. You know, stay in school. Um, 
the Brazilian government actually trained some teachers hoping to establish some type of school system in the jungle. And it never, it never panned out. They never had the funding or the ability to get these schools up off the ground, but they did have a couple dozen teachers trained that could read. So amazingly, our, our guys discovered that there was people on the other side of the jungle that knew how to read, and they came back empty-handed. They left all their scripture, all their, their copies of the portions of scripture that had been translated. They left it there on the other side of the jungle. Um, that was kind of an exciting uh, report when they came back. We heard about that, that, that uh, God's word has actually taken root on the other side of the jungle. Um, that was really exciting. Huge cause for prayer. Um, we didn't know whether to be whether we were happier or, or or scareder because we have a whole bunch of infant believers now on the far side of the jungle and we don't know how who's going to teach them doctrine, but uh, they're there and we're praying for them and they do have some scripture in their hands, uh, so we're excited to see how God's going to work through that. Um, one of the other things I wanted to tell you about this evening is where we've been working. The church is beginning to thrive, beginning to stand on its own two feet. There are some veteran missionaries and some other uh, things going on there that are training this church to be able to stand and become more and more independent. Um, and we've felt, Valerie and I, that uh, we've actually begun to work ourselves out of a job. And uh, so we're hoping when we go back in the end of August to begin an, another project upriver, a little bit farther into the jungle. Uh, we're planning to build a new house and uh, start basically over from square one with what's been going on in Potomiu. We've been making visits to a couple different villages, and one of those villages has no uh, permanent missionary presence. Uh, they do have a brand-new airstrip that they themselves spend a lot of time building. Uh, so we do have a little bit of better access to that area now. And uh, we're hoping to go in there and work with a handful of believers that have uh, come to know the Lord with over the uh, the course of the past few years, uh, some initial evangelism has been done there. And there are some infant believers there, and they're calling for missionaries. Please come stay with us. Come come build a school here. I questioned them very carefully the last time I was up there. I said, why is it that you want a school? And they said, because we want to learn about God's word. I said, that's a very good answer. Uh, are you sure you don't want to get government salaries to be teachers and and work in the government health clinic? And they said, no, we want to learn God's word. And I said, do you, do you want missionaries to come live here so that you can you know, get the contact with the outside world to have clothes and machetes and axes and all those things? And they said, no, we want you to teach us how to study God's word. And I said, well, if that's true, Valerie and I will come here and build a house. And so that's how that plan was hatched. Uh, that's why when we go back, we're hoping to... Uh, begin this new construction project. A great, Another great concern for prayer for us. Um, we've been always working with a team in the village of Potomiu. We have uh, 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 Valley and I uh, and two other couples and a single gal have been working in Potomiu. When we go into the new village of Budu'u, we'll be kind of out on our own for initial period. We'll be building a little bit of infrastructure and we're uh, hoping to recruit uh, other team members to help us in that project there as well. Um, so if any of you are available uh, after September. So um, really, we are recruiting. We are looking for people. We're praying. Uh, we appreciate your prayers uh, in that area as well. And 
And really, I want to thank you for, for the prayers that you've been praying for us over the years and for your support. It's made a real difference. Uh, and we're not here to say John and Valerie are these great missionaries. That's not the, the, the case, really. God is good. God is the one who's been moving among the Anamami. Um, and we're here to tell you what the church has been doing down there in South America and what this church has been doing, uh, what God has been doing. Um, the missionaries that came before us did tremendous amounts of work, uh, tremendous sacrifices, lived in much more primitive conditions than us, um, uh, and saw very little fruit, really. Uh, and it was over years and years of investment in teaching doctrine that slowly they began to understand better and have made uh, uh, decisions and uh, have returned to the Lord. So we want to thank you and tell you what's been going on and and can ask you to continue praying for us. Thank you. And if you want to see some pictures afterwards, they're still in my quiver over there. Is there a picture of the anaconda over there? Yes, I do. Good. I want to see that. Valley, it, Valley, Valley likes to call it the picture of the, the passion fruit bush there. Right. Yeah. Okay. Anybody have any questions before we wrap up? Tinker. Do they have a pagan religion that is in conflict with you? Or? Um, okay. The question was, do they have a, a pagan religion and what is their religion? Yes, they're animists, um, which means they believe that everything has uh, spirits, the Yanomami are a little bit unique, and they believe that all the spirits are evil, and they try to manipulate them. They don't worship them. They're trying to manipulate the spirits. It leads to a very manipulative culture. They love to try to figure out ways to get somebody who doesn't want to do what they want them to do to do what they want them to do. Uh, it makes it life a little bit difficult among them. But uh, It also leads very easily into syncretism. They say, oh, Jesus or God, another spirit, no problem. So we have to watch out for that. Unlike Christians here, try to manipulate God. <laughs> Any other questions? Gene. You said that uh, if someone was interested in coming down there, what could a person from here do with you? Okay, the question was what could a person do that came down there from here? What could they do? Um, hmm? Live there for 10 years. <laughs> um that's what Valerie says. Uh, we do have some opportunities for teaching. Uh, the leadership development courses that we've been doing, we bring in teachers from the outside and translate uh, for the Yanomami. Um, as it was aptly pointed out during the pastor's conference, it's actually servant development courses, but uh, that's what we train them to do, uh, how to serve the body. And uh, there's plenty of, like, uh, like this construction project, uh, there's a lot of Physical work to be done, maintenance on a, on a jungle post is sometimes overwhelming. There's also opportunities out in the, in the city that we based out of. Um, we have an infrastructure there that helps missionaries living in more primitive areas. It's difficult to maintain as well. Hey, Bryce, that's something you and Bert could do. Go down there, do a little construction. <laughs> okay, any other questions? Nope. Well, John, thanks. Valerie, it's great to see you all. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time we've had together. Thank you for the ministry that John and Valerie have down there with the Yanomami. Pray that you'd continue to open doors and provide the resources they need, the personnel, the finances. 
Pray for them in the new venture as they prepare to move and start a new work. We pray that that will go well and that their time back in the States would be uh, very profitable as they make contact with supporters and present what they're doing to different churches. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.